So maybe you are aware or not, but consistently in surveys across America every year, there are different groups. There's Pew Research and Gallup Poll and the Barna Group and survey Americans about religion constantly, tracking numbers. And 75% of Americans consistently from the 1920s when Gallup began polling from the 1920s until 2018, 75%, the number has not changed very much at all, of Americans say, I'm a Christian. And we know that's not true. I mean, you can look at the state of our nation, our morality and our government and our entertainment and our finances, and you can say 75% of the people in this nation don't honestly follow Jesus. So why are they saying that? Well, they're saying that because they're not Muslim or Buddhist, and they're not a nun, meaning an atheist or an agnostic or I have no faith. And they have some idea that, yeah, yeah, there's a God out there, and uh, somehow Jesus is connected to him, and uh, I guess if I have to choose something, that's what I choose. 90% of Americans believe in heaven, and 99% of that 90% of the ones who believe there's a heaven, only 10% of Americans are committed atheists. Nope, when I die, I'm going to fertilize daisies, and that's it. 10%, there is no heaven Everything is just material and biological. 90% of Americans believe there is a heaven. And of that group, 99% believe that they will go there. And we know that's not true. We got some work to do. We got some work to do. You know people in your family, you know people that you work with who think they're Christians, but you know they're not. Jesus said it's the blind leading the blind. A blind person cannot know that they're blind unless a seeing person tells them they're blind. A blind person only knows blindness. A seeing person knows seeing and blindness. Jesus said it's the blind leading the blind. They claim to see, but they don't. And they can't know the difference. But seeing people can absolutely, without a doubt, know the difference between seeing and blindness. So the people who are truly born again can know the truth about the people who think they're born again and aren't. But the people who think they're born again and aren't don't know the difference. We have some work to do. I read you scriptures last week, four different parables of Jesus. And he said, many who call me Lord will be locked out of my kingdom. America is a very weird place. We're actually a post-Christian nation. All of our problems are the morality and ideas of Christianity taken to a sinful extreme outside of Christ. There's lots of people who claim Christianity but who aren't. So our evangelism actually has to be convincing people they aren't a Christian so that they can become one. That's that's what evangelism has to be in our world. No, you don't actually know Jesus, uh, but I'd love you to join the team, and here's what it really means. Hello? The person who knows they're against God. I can deal with that. But it's actually exactly like the Old Testament prophets. The situation we are in now in post-Christian America is exactly like the Old Testament prophets where everyone in the whole nation thinks we're the people of God and you're not following him. But the Old Testament prophets weren't, God tells Ezekiel, I'm not calling you to a people of strange language and strange religion. He said, if I'd sent you to the pagans, you'd have an easy job. 
because you can contrast what they believe with, with what's in the Bible. But going to a people who think they're the people of God and think they have the truth, and, but they really don't, is extremely difficult. It really is our job to convince people, no, you're not a Christian, but we'd, I'd love you to be, and here's what you got to do to join the team. So if there are many, Jesus said, many people who call themselves Christians who are not, then who are we trying to reach, and who is actually our brother and sister in Christ? Because unfortunately, the church spends way too much time fighting itself and not winning the lost. And we need to reverse that. We need to not be picking fights with the people who are truly our brothers and sisters and spend more time trying to win the people who think they are found but are actually lost. Hello. So I want to define for you this morning who is the church, who are the people of God, and who is not. Um, just so you can know who you're supposed to be reaching for Jesus and who you're supposed to be loving as a brother and sister. And so I have actually, I'm going to start with a list of who is not the church, who's not actually born again or the people of God, and then we'll talk about who is. Number one on my list, not in any particular order, but number one, being in the church or being a true Christian, being born again, has absolutely nothing to do with self-identification, that I just say I'm a Christian. There's lots of people who say they're Christians and they're not. It has absolutely nothing to do with group identification. Well, I attend that church, or I'm a member of that denomination, or uh, so-and-so is my pastor. None of that has anything to do with eternal salvation. No one can just say, well, I'm this, or I attend that, or so-and-so is my pastor, or I've been baptized, or what, it has nothing to do with that. Group membership, the beliefs of the group that you're a part of. In Jesus' parable that I read you last week, the people in two of the parables make excuses like, Jesus, let us in. We were around your people. We ate and drank with you. We heard you preach. We, we saw miracles. We were at the revival meeting, Jesus. They're talking about who they're associated with rather than knowing Jesus. And he doesn't let them in. Being around a group of godly people, being baptized into a particular denomination, or saying, I attend this church or that, is meaningless by itself. It's only and all about Jesus Christ. He is all there is. He is the judge. He is all that matters. The church cannot save you. Only Jesus can. The church cannot save you. This is where the baby baptizers miss the mark. Because they do that because they believe that to be saved, you must be in the church. So we will put this infant in the church so that this person is saved. And then they go through confirmation later and catechism and, and all these things. But they're baptizing them before this person has any personal faith or actually, in my opinion, any need for personal faith. But their identity or their idea is that the church is the Savior rather than Jesus. The bride is not the Savior, only the husband. The perfect proof of that is Judas. Judas was a believer. He believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the Messiah. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was baptized. John chapter 3, the disciples of John 
baptized all the disciples of Jesus. Judas was baptized. Judas attended the holiest, most spirit-filled church in world history. He had the best pastor, the best teacher, the best counselor ever. And not only was Jesus his pastor, teacher, preacher, he lived with him for three and a half years. Judas had a leadership position in that congregation. He was on the budget committee. He served in his church. He was the sole member, apparently, of the budget committee. He didn't just attend church and fill a spot in a seat. He served in a ministry. He was one of the chosen 70, and out of the 70, he's one of the 12, which means he performed miracles, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, and he baptized other people. On the outside, he's a pretty holy dude. Jesus said, one of you is a devil. Exact quote to the 12. I have chosen you all, and one of you is a devil. He is in Jesus' inner circle. Jesus taught him. Jesus counseled him. Jesus ate with him. Jesus washed his feet. Literally like five or ten minutes before he left to go betray him, Jesus washed his feet along with the other disciples. And that passage said, Satan entered him. That's beyond demon possession. That's the only person ever specifically said that he was Satan-possessed. Notice he didn't become a drooling madman. Hello. Demon possession is different than you think. It's different than Hollywood portrays it. Your group affiliation means nothing. Nothing. Your association, the church you attend, the pastor you have, the group that you're a part of, or the fact that you've gone through all the membership requirements means absolutely nothing. If you don't mean it, if you don't own it, the fact that you were baptized or you have a good pastor or you really like your church or it has good worship service cannot save you if you're not living it in everyday life. Another story that shows that is that Jesus is preaching one day in a synagogue and there is a demonized man that begins to manifest while Jesus is preaching. This man attended synagogue every Saturday with a demon inside of him and nobody bothered him and he didn't bother anybody else. The demons are completely comfortable in church until Jesus shows up. Then the demon can't shut up. So not everybody that goes to church is saved. There are bad apples in every group. There are good apples in every group. So with Catholic priests, some of them are great men of God and some of them are sick perverts. Some Baptists are super self-righteous and others are super genuine and fervent for Jesus. Some Charismatics are stupid and others are the most spiritually deep people I know. Some Calvinists are disgustingly judgmental and others are serious servants of Jesus. Group affiliation does not define the person. I'm asking, who's our brother and sister and who are we supposed to be evangelizing who is the church of Jesus Christ It has nothing to do with where one attends church or who where I was baptized when I was an infant or uh, who was my pastor or what meeting I was a part of. Or what membership paper I have somewhere in a box in the attic. Number two, 
Number one was, has nothing to do with whether I say I'm a Christian or I associate with Christians. Number two, who is not the church, who is not what has nothing to do with being saved is, it's not nice people. Nice people, good people, are not saved. Last Sunday during second service, Kobe Bryant had his uh, helicopter crash. And uh, it's a true tragedy that nine people would die early in an accident like that. But I became very distressed during the week of all this artwork that was getting posted on Facebook. And I'm sure you saw it on Instagram too of Kobe Bryant in heaven with a halo and he's floating on a cloud. And how do you know? What proof is there at all that this guy knew Jesus? He may have. I don't know at all. But the fact that I don't know at all means he wasn't talking about it very much. If he was, I don't know. Ted told me that he was Catholic and that he had been at Mass right before the helicopter crash. I hope he knew real Jesus and not just going through ritual. I hope. And if he didn't know Jesus, I hope he cried out to God on the way down. Because Joel 2.32 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I hope. But I have no idea. But what can't happen is that those of us who are real Christians, who believe in heaven and hell, we cannot deceive our friends and neighbors and everybody online by just depicting this sentimental idea that everybody goes to heaven. It could be really, really, really bad for most of the people on that helicopter right now. Jesus' depiction of hell is that they are screaming out for somebody to warn their family left behind, don't do what I did. By all accounts, Kobe Bryant's a really nice guy. People tend to exaggerate people's goodness at their funeral. They're not really as good as everybody says um, at the funeral. I've done a lot of funerals. I see that. I experience that. But by all accounts, he's a nice guy. I mean, there was one sexual assault charge, and maybe he's a closet hypocrite, and he's a really bad dude who just had a good public image, or maybe she's just wanting money and attention, and so she lies about him. Who knows? Both are completely possible. Maybe he is a genuinely nice guy. Doesn't matter a bit to his eternity. Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback for the Chiefs, who's going to win today, Claims to be a Christian, brought up by a Christian mom, talks about Jesus all the time. He's openly living with a woman he's not married to. Does a commercial for a furniture store in Kansas City that Sarah and I saw several times when we were back there a few weeks ago, where he and his girlfriend are shopping for a bed. While talking about Jesus, he is unrepentantly, unashamedly living with a woman he's not married to. He's not born again. A born again man wouldn't do that. I love him. I like him. I will cheer for him. I think he's, now that Brady's done, he's going to be the best quarterback in the NFL. And I cheer, but I pray for his soul that matters way more than anything he does in sports. His third second in hell when he dies, nothing he did on earth will matter. So I have prayed Many times for him, I don't, I, just because I'm a Chiefs fan, I don't know most of the other quarterbacks' names, not because I know him and care about him. Specifically, it's just, God, put the fear of God in him. Bring him to repentance. That is not okay. That he uses your name and then is openly in sexual sin. 
Andy Reid, the coach of the Chiefs, is a Mormon, and by all accounts, a very genuine, real, good man. And I have lots of problems with Mormons, but I have more respect for him if he's an integrous Mormon than Mahomes, who's a fake Christian. Nice people. Mahomes is as nice as it gets, I guess. You know, a lot of those pro sports people have reputation for being really dirty, terrible, nasty people, morally and personally, socially. But by all accounts, Mahomes is a great guy. Doesn't mean anything toward his eternity. Number three, who is not saved? Who is not the church? It's not those who deny clear Bible truth about Jesus or sin. Holiness means that there is a dividing line, and the dividing line is the Bible. And there are groups who claim to be Christians, but they deny the Bible. Our Mormon friends and neighbors come to mind. I told you before, I have two men that are Mormon that I count as really good friends, and I love them, and I pray for their salvation. And they're good guys, but they're not my brothers in Christ, because they deny the divinity of Jesus. They call him the Son of God, and they call him Lord, but they define that very differently, that Jesus was just born a human and he became a God, and that all the rest of us will too, or well, the Mormons. The JWs across the street here, they deny nearly every aspect of the Apostles' Creed. They don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God or that he was divine. There's Unitarians that call themselves Christians. The United Church of Christ is now referring to God as mother instead of father. Uh, There are people who, uh, my point is, there are people who call themselves Christians that have totally lost the plot. And they aren't Christians because they deny the word of God. And the issue, the issue of our day right now is the sexual divide that is happening around the world, not just in the church, but the entire world, but it is is happening in the church. Uh, Just this week, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Anglican Church, which in America is called the Episcopal Church, who is a Holy Spirit-baptized, born-again man, several weeks ago published guidelines on sexual sin, where he laid out the very clear biblical standard is sex is only for one man and one woman married for one lifetime. That's it. All other sexual activity is sin. Homosexual, heterosexual, doesn't matter. Adultery, fornication, all of it is wrong. It's all outside God's boundary. And it was gracious, it was biblical, it was historical Christianity, and he got thrashed in the British press, so much so that two or three days ago he had to to issue an apology. His bishops demanded that he issue an apology for being, not being radically inclusive. The word holiness means exclusive. It literally means exclusive. All are welcome, but if you come, I will make you exclusive. Jesus is not inclusive. Everyone can be included in being excluded. But we are excluded from the world. The Presbyterians and the Methodists are are totally losing the plot. 
encouraging people into sin rather than salvation and repentance. The simple and clear reading of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, literally the first or second page to the very last page of the Bible, sex is only for one man and one woman who are married for one lifetime. Everything else is sin. All extramarital sex is forbidden in no uncertain terms. So why do I say that that's the issue? Because it is. It's the political and religious issue of the day. It's everywhere. And some of you might think, well, I think abortion is a more important issue. Well, it is, but it's the same issue. And the Catholic Church particularly predicted that way before Roe v. Wade. They were shouting it when contraception became the issue. This will lead to sexual freedom and permissiveness apart from marriage and we will have an absolute disaster and we do. It is a theological, it is a doctrinal issue. Because defining human activity by God's word is theological and doctrinal. In 2,000 years of church history, there have always been martyrs who are killed for their faith. And there are two types of martyrs all around the world, all through church history. There are two types of reasons why, two categories for people that are martyred. Either there's a Christian evangelizing or preaching and some authority or just a mob comes and says, stop preaching, renounce Christ, something like that. And when they don't, they get their head chopped off or they get stoned to death just for being a Christian, for preaching, for evangelism. The other type of person who is killed for their Christian faith in the last 2,000 years, and this would include Arrhenius and Athanasius and Tyndale and Huss, several Reformation leaders, is the person who stands up for biblical truth against the so-called Christian establishment of the day. Tyndale was burned at the stake. He was actually choked with a rope and then burned burned at the stake for trying to translate the Bible into English. Who killed him? Other so-called Christians who were denying the word of God. John Huss was executed for the same reason in what is now Romania, uh, Czechoslovakia area. Not well known in America, but he's a national hero there. The fake Christians kill the real ones for standing up for biblical truth. When the politically established Christians deny biblical truth. And the issue changes through time. Arrhenius was put to death for claiming that Jesus was eternal and uncreated. That's not an argument we have anymore. Any real Orthodox Christian is, believes that Jesus is eternal and uncreated. I mean, the Mormons would say that he isn't, and so would Jehovah's Witnesses. But that's not an issue that's, that's shaking the Christian world right now. The definition of sexual sin and morality is. That's our issue for today. We're not worried about Bible translation anymore. We're not worried about defining Jesus as eternal or uh, actually Arrhenius also fought uh, the original Arian heresy that Jesus' father was not the God of the Old Testament, that there were two gods. There was Jehovah and then there was Jesus' father. And Crazy ideas that the churches had to dispute what is really true and people have lost their lives for it. Definition of sexual purity and righteousness is the issue of the day that we absolutely have to take a stand on. Because the definition of sexual sin 
then leads to identity issues and abortion and divorce and fatherlessness and trafficking and the transgender stuff and the definition of marriage and all that comes out of the church's failure to shine a light in the darkness. Who is thinks they're a Christian and really isn't? Number one, church membership, being baptized, hanging around with God's people does not make you a Christian. Number two is being a nice person does not save you. Number three, if you deny who Jesus is or how the Bible defines morality, sin and righteousness, you're not born again. You don't know God, because if you knew God, you would say yes and amen to his entire word. Number four, it's not those who love this world. There are lots of people who claim to be Christians, but they have idols in their heart, goals, money, career, their body, um, either food or fitness, either one becomes an idol, something they spend all their time and attention and money on. Those who label themselves Christians, but I'm hard-pressed to see any difference in how they spend their time and money and their interests compared to the unsaved people I know. In Revelation, those people are depicted as the harlot in Revelation that loves this world, and that's contrasted with the bride, who is the real church, who is holy and set apart for Jesus. Because the bride of Christ is all about Jesus. Period. All about Jesus, all for Jesus, only about Jesus, only for Jesus. The bride is the people who have come to him alone, to be saved, to be healed, to be delivered, freed. The people who have admitted their sin and their need and asked for forgiveness and cleansing. Revelation says they have washed their robes white as snow in the blood of the Lamb. The bride is the people who love Jesus in return. Give up our lives for him because he gave up his life for us. They do not love this world or even their own life. There's no other love, no other attention, no other God, no other man. The bride is holy, which means set apart or exclusive. And exclusivity is not an unreasonable demand. It is not unreasonable for me to expect Sarah to keep her eyes and hands off of every other man in the whole world. It is not unreasonable for her to have that demand of me. That's love. It's not unreasonable. It's not demanding. It's not legalistic. It's not overly strict for us to have that expectation of each other. And it's not at all unreasonable for Jesus to expect you to only to live for him. The people of the bride do all the same things Judas did but with a pure heart. The fake Christians look like real ones. Judas was attended church. He was baptized. He believed in Jesus. He believed in God. He said all the right things. He even performed miracles. Greater miracles than I have. The real church does the same thing, but for the right reason. Out of love for Jesus. And not religious duty or some hypocrisy that I want to look like a good person. And when the people in the bride, when they fail, like Peter, they run back to Jesus instead of away from him. When the bride falls, she runs back to her husband, not hides and lies. 
And just like the false Christians, group affiliation means nothing to the real bride. Hello. It is not a defining factor. You will find members of the real bride in every church building in the world. Just like you will find unsaved fake liars in every church building in the world, including this one. The Charismatics slash Pentecostals are the biggest group in the world, mostly because of Africa and China, but there are billion and a half of us who claim the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the communion of the Spirit, but that's not even really a denomination because those people could be members of lots of denominations, but the sociologists and the pollsters would tell you that the Catholics are the largest group. Half of all Christians in the world are Catholic, but that's counting everyone in Brazil and everyone in Mexico, and it's not true. Everyone in France and Spain is Catholic, but not the bride. There's Eastern Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, and those are the largest groups in the world. But then there's the one-off groups that have their particular identity that's their issue, like the Seventh-day Adventists, or the Church of Christ, or the Amish, or the Southern Baptists, or the Mennonites and the Calvinists. And then there's the whole completely undefined underground church of China and Vietnam and North Korea and Cuba and Venezuela. Beautiful Jesus people. Where group affiliation doesn't mean anything. The Methodists and Episcopals in Africa are currently in a very strong, bitter fight with their leaders in Europe and America to define sexual sin biblically. Because there are so many more Episcopals, Anglicans, and Methodists in Africa than in America and Europe, those groups are having a really hard time. The godless people who lead it here uh, having a hard time getting done what they want because of the faithfulness of the African priests and bishops. Saying, no, that's completely unbiblical. There's tribal Christians in Sudan and Nigeria and Iraq and Turkey and Syria who's they're not just Christians, but it's their whole national identity. And you look at them and they've got, they wear machine guns to church because they have to. And you think, that's not very Christian. Well, it is there. <laughs> American charismatic Christianity is not the center of Christianity. It's not even the best Christianity. In the next decade or two, there will be more evangelicals in Brazil than America. And they are actually having conferences on how to come and evangelize America. Because the Christians in America aren't doing it. Yay, Brazil. Thank you. Send them, Jesus. There are more spirit-filled Christians in China, more Holy Spirit Christians, not the political um, three-self church, but underground, spirit-filled, Holy Spirit, miracle, power, more in China than total Christians of any brand in America. We're not the center of the universe, and how we do church right here in Legrand is not how everybody else does it, and that's okay. Just as there are bad apples in every group, there are sweet apples in every group who truly love Jesus with a pure heart. 
There is no one expression of real Christian faith that has a monopoly on how it has to be done. I listen to revivalists' prophecies in the charismatic church, and I really get the sense over the years that a lot of the people doing the prophesying think that when the church becomes unified before Jesus comes back, all the churches of the whole world will look like Bethel and Toronto. It's not going to happen. On the other end of the spectrum, a hundred years ago, there was a Russian Orthodox monk who lived in the wilderness in Siberia who wrote a novel about the end of time before Jesus comes back, the Antichrist, the one world government, and it is jaw-droppingly accurate what he foresaw coming, except that in this novel, all the Catholics and Protestants of the world repent and become Orthodox. Every group thinks, we're the right one. Other believers around the world who don't know what you do or do it a different way are not lesser believers, and they're not wrong. They're not your crazy uncles and cousins in the family of God. They may have some error, but if they define Jesus correctly, it's not wrong. Well, Mitch, the Catholics are wrong, or the Calvinists are wrong. Well, sure, there's plenty I would disagree with them about, but... What am I wrong about and don't know yet? How would you like to have your genuine faith discredited? I'm talking about those that are truly for Jesus. Right? Okay, there's plenty of fake people in every denomination and church, so I'm not talking about the perverted Catholic priests. I'm not talking about the, the Episcopal bishops that have lost Christianity altogether. I'm not, the real people in, in, the, in the trenches, on the ground who love Jesus, and their Greek Orthodox Christianity is very different than mine, and I would say, there's a lot I would have to just say, no, I don't agree with you on, but I can't say that they're not born again. Don't insult or blame Jesus' bride. There are some extremely divergent expressions of christianity i have no idea who that is on the left top that's baptisms in africa i've never seen those kind of costumes i don't know what that is but it's christian and there's baptisms in jesus name these two dudes in the top right uh, on the far right is patriarch cyril of the russian orthodox church and the man on the left is patriarch alexander of the greek orthodox church i dare say that most Protestants, especially in America, would see a church plated in gold and people dressed like that and say, that's not like Jesus. But they look at us. If they attended our church, they're like, this isn't even a church. What is this mess? Preacher in jeans? What was that music? And then you got the Amish who would have very, very strong ideas about us. Not following Jesus correctly. Hello? And we can't look, pat them on the head and, oh, you're so quaint. But uh, No, they are our real brothers and sisters. Full, 100% equal brothers and sisters. I know there's lots of Amish that aren't born again. Please understand that. The fact that they're Amish doesn't mean they're Jesus' bride. But there are a lot that are in real, genuine faith. Orphanage in India. The expressions of Christianity around the globe are so different. Next picture is a British nun, an 
Indian nun and a Caribbean baptism. And those people's worlds are very different. Obviously, the people in the picture, I don't know them. I don't know if they're truly born again. But if they are, the fact that they're dressed different and sing different and do different, they're our brothers and sisters. Next one. This is a Seventh-day Adventist baptism in Rwanda that happened two years ago. 2,200 people baptized in an afternoon. I have some problems with Seventh-day Adventists. They got some ideas like, nope, that ain't right. But they're baptizing people in Jesus' name. 2,200 of them. I've never done that. (laughs) Praise God. Jesus will sort it all out. (laughs) Bottom left is Burmese women in a secret church, worshiping, clapping, hands raised. Top right is Greek Orthodox, what are called megaloschemos, monks and nuns. And they practice complete silence for years at a time, meditating, repeating only the words, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. 24-7, as long as we know when they're awake, for years at a time. And they're dressed weird. They, They don't look happy. They don't look anything like the women in the bottom clapping and raising their hands to Jesus. Like we would say, oh, yes, that's worship. They would look at us and say, you all are seriously irreverent and casual. I don't know. I, again, I, none, of the, none or all or some of those people are born again. I don't know. But the ones that are, the fact that they express it very differently than me, if their faith is Jesus alone, praise God. All right. I've told you this story once before, but a whole bunch of you didn't hear it and a whole bunch of you forgot it. So Ulf Ekman is a Swedish pastor who had a church in Kiev, Ukraine. He was the largest spirit-filled, it was actually a word of faith church in Europe. Largest word of faith, mega church, several thousand people in Kiev, Ukraine, although he was Swedish. So he's in, in Europe. He is a mega church pastor, Holy Spirit-filled man. Uh, he's a great guy, author of lots of books celebrity type preacher in Europe. He was in Jerusalem on a Holy Land tour and he sees an Orthodox monk coming down an alleyway in Jerusalem or Bethlehem or something and he's swinging his incense censer and he's chanting the same words over and over that he chants every day, the only prayer that he prays forever and ever and ever and it's not personal, it's memorized and he just says it. And Ulf Ekman thinks as he passes him by, I'm glad I know Jesus. And I'm not stuck in dead, empty religion. And he said, instantly the Holy Spirit hit me like a ton of bricks and said, how dare you judge your brother? And it shook him so much to the core that as he came to realize his own religious pride and judgment of other expressions of true Christianity, he didn't know that man's heart. He didn't know if he meant it or not. He just judged him that he didn't and that it was empty and memorized and pointless. That it's just empty ritual and we live by the Holy Spirit. It shook him so much to the core that over a three or four year process, he resigned his position as the church, uh, the pastor of the church. And I don't know why, but eventually he ended up as a Catholic, sitting in the Catholic church, finding the presence of God. That's not what I would do, but that was, that was his story. And his testimony, the Lord said, how dare you judge 
your brother. Romans 14 says, Who are you to judge another man's servant to his own master he stands or falls? Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Amen. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, God does not tell us to keep unity of mind. It is okay that the Calvinists believe what they believe, and that the Catholics believe what they believe, and that we believe what we believe. It is okay. Everybody needs to chillax. Right? It is okay. Well, we must, we are required to have the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are commanded to be at peace with each other. To keep the bond of peace in the unity of the Spirit. I actually believe, I've told you this before, but I believe the church is divided on purpose. This is Jesus' plan all along. Is that there would be, literally, thousands of denominations. Because you can see in the churches in either a mega congregation in America or like the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church where things become political, you can see the corruption that happens so quick and easy when the church is large and has power. When one leader has thousands of people that listen to him every Sunday, he gets pretty full of himself. When one group has power all over the world with people and with politics and massive amounts of money it's not the church anymore it is God's plan that the church is divided we're not to be working to unify all of us together so that we all agree on everything and everybody meets together on Sunday morning and we're all just this one big happy family that is not God's plan it is okay that the Baptists do what they do and the Charismatics do what they do and the Assembly of God does what they do and the Lutherans do what they do that's okay There's supposed to be division because when there's division and we're small and we're poor and we can't get it done, then when it happens, we all know it's God. When the Catholic Church does something, they can write a billion-dollar check. You're like, well, that isn't a miracle. But when when a small congregation of 100 people pays for a $2 million building, like, that's God! When you reach out and you have an evangelistic crusade and... Six people get saved. It's a miracle revival. Come on. We're, this is Jesus' plan all along. We're not supposed to all, every Christian in Legrand meet in one place. I used to think that that was the case. Uh, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we agree to have our differences, but we could, we could meet together and, and worship together and, and listen to the pastor, and, and we should be able to get that, but it's not true. We're divided on purpose. There's supposed to be a tension of disagreeing ideas so that we arrive at the truth. Not just one leader or group of leaders handing down doctrinal dictates for everybody to believe. That happened in the Middle Ages, and the church went to hell. Hello? It's a disaster when the church is completely unified. It's not God's plan. In Israel, there were 12 tribes 
one nation but 12 tribes. Every tribe had its own territory. Every tribe had its own leaders. God calls them your fathers. Every tribe had their own fathers. The only two times they were to unify was the three feasts in Jerusalem. And if one tribe got attacked, everybody goes to war to defend them. Otherwise, you have your own territory, your own leaders, you have your own government, you have your own hometown, and, and that's true in the church. There's supposed to be Southern Baptists and Calvinists and Amish. Can you imagine if there was no Amish in the church? How materialistic the rest of us would be? But you look at the Amish like, oh, yeah, maybe I should not do that. <laughs> Seriously, we're, su- we're supposed to have that tension. Of our brothers and sisters that are so completely different from us that it provokes us. They're supposed to be the the golden beauty of the Orthodox and Catholic Church. And they're supposed to be the personal, individual faith that the Protestant Church espouses. Come on. Ecumenical movements always fail. And they always move towards sin and away from Jesus. So we have our pastor's prayer every uh, Wednesday morning here, and we, we are running into some of that. There are pastors here in town who are not in agreement with the rest of us. They want to allow sexual sin in their congregations. They want to embrace it. They want to be radically inclusive. They, they don't believe. One pastor said at a pastor meeting recently that, well, everyone is a child of God, and they just don't know it yet, and we just have to love them until they get to heaven. That's not Christianity. And that person wants to come to our prayer meeting, and, and it's like, well, sure, you're welcome to attend, but, but we're not going to allow that. That's not Christianity. So ecumenical movements always move toward the lowest common denominator, toward sin, and away from Jesus. We were trying to define ourselves. What, what is this group that we are? And we decided, really, all that counts is your definition of Jesus and sin and righteousness as defined by the Bible. Who is Jesus? Defined by the Bible. And what is sin and righteousness? Defined by the Bible. That's really all that counts. Because there are guys in my circle every Wednesday that I pray with that, that I know we could have some very intense arguments on the finer points of doctrine. But I told them, I said, you know what? We could leave here very angry with each other, but we would survive it and we would know it because we all agree that this book is the truth. And that's all that matters. The people who don't, who deny this book, we don't have fellowship with them. There's no common ground. There's no common Jesus. When we agree on this book, you're my brother and sister, regardless of the debates on the finer points. Scriptural instructions really fall into those categories. Is believe on Jesus. Believe and be baptized. Believe that he's the son of God. Call on his name. There's a bunch of different scriptures, way too many for me to list, but they can be boiled down to that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Call on his name and you will be safe. And confess and repent and be baptized. Stop sinning. And live righteously. That right there is 98% of the New Testament. Believe who Jesus is, stop sinning, and here's how to do it right. Anybody of any brand who believes that is my brother or sister. Anybody who says they're a Christian and doesn't abide by that, I'm trying to win them onto the team, for real. Amen. I got to quit. I'm only half done. 
Lord, thank you so much for your beautiful, holy, pure bride. Thank you that you have washed us in your blood and our robes are white as snow. Thank you for defining for us who we are to you and to each other. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would keep those who carry your name. Lord, I pray that this would be a place that bears your name, that we are your, a part of your bride, that we are an encouragement to other churches, that we bless our brothers and sisters, and that we win the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.